Good morning. We doing all right? We doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing good too. Thanks for asking. Um, so, had an a interesting week. Uh, every once in a while, you get one of these weeks where um, just kind of uh, a number of things happen that just remind us how temporary life is. A uh, number of people uh, either uh, passed away or uh, cancer this week. Just kind of a, a hard week. So Rich is not here with us uh, this morning. He wasn't planning on preaching, but he was going to be here. His daughter's father-in-law passed away completely unexpected, out of the blue. Um, they were supposed to be in Maui for his birthday this week and just uh, out of nowhere. So he's up there. Just be praying for them. Um, also, just in my family, my wife's step-grandfather-in-law passed away. Uh, we're not super close with them, but still, you know, your family is kind of affected by that. Um, beyond that, uh, just a good friend in our community group, uh, one of their friends, uh, cancer's coming back, and that's, I mean, super hard. Um, on Friday, I received, well, another thing, uh, Michelsons are coming back, our missionaries. Be praying for them. Uh, some of you know they're in South America in a country that's incredibly unstable right now. Uh, and so kind of for their security and their family safety, uh, they made the hard decision to come back. So just be praying for them. Also, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, if you know of a place, three-bedroom house, that uh, they might be able to move into, we're looking next month even, uh, maybe just email the church. And then uh, beyond uh, just that, got a got the word Friday evening that a really, not super close, but a dear uh, a guy, kind of former boss of mine passed away. Uh, super hard, uh, kind of a weird week where um, this guy, John Dunleavy was saying, he was our, actually our principal uh, in Korea when my wife and I were there. Uh, a guy just ferociously loved the Lord. Uh, I don't say that about many people. Uh, I know I said that about Megan's grandma who just constantly is verbalizing it. This guy was one of those people. Um, to where, honestly, if you were not a Christian, just being around him would be so annoying. I mean, just constantly talking about Jesus. Uh, and it, I, I got to just say a story for John. Um, just I remember oftentimes he was our, our principal and the disciplinarian, which was so not his character. I mean, kids would come in who, I mean, I, I literally remember this. Like there were kids who were fighting um, with, you know, fist, hand fist, just going at it. And he brings him in, and he's kind of recalling the story to me. He's like, just think of what those hands can do for the gospel. And I'm like, he needs to be punished. He's like, but this can be redeemed. We can work through this. And, you know, just love the Lord. Just, man. And so uh, just spent some time Friday evening with uh, my wife, kind of just uh, going through old pictures and memories of kind of that time in our life. is a good time. And uh, just a weird week where all these things kind of add up. Um, you know, some of those deaths hard when, when there's no guarantee that they know and love the Lord and really no evidence with some people that they know and love the Lord. That's, that's a heavy, weighty thing. I mean, if that's not one of the weightiest things as a true believer, um, I don't know what is. I mean, you're talking about not uh, temporary separation, but eternal separation. And that's, and that's weighty. So I uh, just kind of working through that. But uh, I think it's I think it's all been preparatory for just this whole response to who God is and how we are a people to worship um, and how temporary this is. So I think God's just kind of been working in our family, getting ready for Sunday. And God ironically does that a lot as I'm preparing through a passage. He'll just kind of bring things into my life. And say, OK, this is this is application to what you're studying. And so uh, he's good at that. 
couple things just up front that I want to just throw at you. Um, you ever seen one of these? Anyone? Yeah, these are, um, these are connection cards. They're in the seat back in front of you. I know that you have your people. Like I, I get that. I know that you you have your groups. You're praying with people. Um, but this is just a simple, just silly way uh, for us as pastors to hear what's going on in your life. Uh, we hear a lot. You know, we know a lot of of you guys. We don't know everyone, and uh, we we genuinely love you and pray for you. And this is just a super easy way. If there's anything going on, fill one out. Put it in an offering box. Um, if you mark confidential, it only goes to pastors and elders. Uh, if you if you just mark kind of general and not confidential, uh, this might be new to some of you. Um, it actually gets put on a prayer sheet. It might look something like this, or maybe another week it'll look something like this. And uh, those actually get put out in the lobby, and anyone can pick them up and be praying for people in the body. So uh, if you need prayer, throw it on there. Uh, and that's kind of just neither here nor there, but I think it's important because we're kind of seeing those numbers wane a bit. And so when I open up my inbox on Monday and there's only like four of those, it makes me sad. Um, so uh, also, I just want to give you some encouragement. We have a number of electives coming up. We've got we've kind of made this shift in uh, kind of programmatic discipleship here to where we're um, trying to do some things with classes and kind of uh, these elective things. Uh, we've we've had the marriage class that's ongoing right now. Ken's here. He's leading that with the Divinis um, doing a great job. I hear um, also. We've got, I think, four or five that are either starting this week or in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so those only work when you go. Um, I know it's kind of hard to imagine, but they work best when people attend. And, and the, the leaders have put a ton of time and effort into making just quality work here. Uh, we've got Michelle Ewis and Tim and the Bjornsteds. Vicky was here somewhere. Um, they're doing a Love and Logic parenting class for ages... Birth to teen. So if you have kids, birth to teen, uh, that's a great one. We've got a C.S. Lewis class. If you're more of the intellectual bent, that should be really good. We've got um, finance class with the furloughs. Um, we've got uh, connection class for those of you who are new. So, And there's a couple of ones. Check out your program. I just encourage you. I know it's easier to not go. I get that. It's so much easier to just sleep in or to do your thing on Sunday. Um, but make yourself vulnerable. Um, Go, sacrifice, join. I think, it's, I think it's good for the body, and it encourages those who put a lot of time to making those happen. So uh, let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to just get after it. Would you pray with me? Father, you and you alone are good, and we can cling to that. We can hold to that in a week um, where we see um, just such a picture of how finite things are here. Uh, and, God, in a week like this, I, I do have a lot of questions um, questions of, of what you're doing and questions of why you're allowing certain things to happen. But then I get to a text like this and I, I get to open up your word and, and really have the privilege of being able to preach your word and see that, God, this is not our city. Our city is to come. And, and because that is true, because this is temporary, God, I, I lift up my voice and worship you. God, I know that you're doing great things, things that I don't see. I don't see much of what you're doing. I get to see a glimpse of that. And for that, I am thankful. God, we, we want to be a thankful people here this morning, and we want to be a worshiping people. Um, it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, so if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've tried to kind of take a, a breather just for a second and ask some questions like, why do we do what we do? Um, if you grew up in church, this seems very normal. It seems normal to come and to sing some songs and, and to kind of listen to someone speak. But honestly, from an outsider's perspective, this is 
This is really strange. Um, maybe some of you are new here, um, and you can vouch for me, and maybe you're new to the whole Christianity thing, and you're, oh, I'm going to step into church. It's weird. Like, we, we know that. I know that. Um, but it's, it's strange that we come in and, and we sing these songs all together, and you've got to stand up and sit down, and, and then you've got to listen to me, and that's weird. And then um, you gotta, uh, you're asked to give some money, and that's even weirder. And weirdest one of all, and I'm not being sacrilegious, but you get to communion and you get a cracker and a juice and okay, everyone take the cracker and the juice. And honestly, those things are weird. Like they are very not normal for society outside of the church. And so I think we get into these rhythms where we grew up in the church and it's like, oh, well, that's just totally normal. Uh, And I think it's good to take a breather and say, why do we do what we do? Why do we gather? Why are we a people? Why does the church exist? Why am I preaching right now? What is the point of this? Why do we sing? And so we kind of have slowly walked through some of the big ones. We, we started with the church. You know, why, why does the church exist? How did this start? Where did we come from? And, and we kind of did a bit of a historical, chronological approach to, to where we got to where we are today. Um, starting um, God really working through one people. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild that God... Grabs one man, one woman, Abram, Sarah, and okay, through you, we're going to create this people. And, and for thousands of years, God worked through one people, one ethnicity, the Jewish people. Um, and, and really that created all kinds of tension between those people and I would say you and I, because most of us in here uh, are not Jews, um, ethnic Jews. And so there was a tension for, for many, many years uh, eventually, out of that race comes Jesus, who who changes everything, who inaugurates the church, who starts kind of this whole new era where God is working in ways that he was not primarily working in before. Uh, but there's still a tension for those who do not adhere to Jesus as Messiah amongst Jews and non-Jews, to where even just this last week, uh, and I need to be careful in how I say this, um, but did anyone see uh, the Miss Universe competition? Uh, not the competition, the headline in the news. I was studying the news, not the competition. Um, there was a picture um, that was taken of Miss Lebanon, not Lebanon, Israel, or not Lebanon um, over here, sweet home. Uh, but Lebanon, Middle East, she's in a selfie. Some of you older folks, that's a picture you take of yourself by yourself. Friends are in that sometimes. Um, And who jumps into the picture but Miss Israel? And people unravel. I mean, literally, there are governments upset that Miss Lebanon and Miss Israel are in a picture together. And that goes back a couple thousand years to where God was working through a people to where now God is working through his church, all kinds of peoples everywhere. So that tension has not decreased for some. For us, we thank God that he has working through the church outside of just that nation. We also said that God uh, has his church for this purpose so that we as a people show the goodness of God. And I'm going to just quiz you and put you all on the spot. How do we best show the goodness of God? By understanding what? I'm hearing some people timidly say it, that we're saved by grace, right? So, I, golly, I spent a whole sermon on this. Our understanding that you and I, that you and me, 
are saved by grace and grace alone shows the goodness of God. It shows the goodness of God because I didn't seek God. Like we got, we got to get this. And, and this is hard for church people because church people think, oh, if I grew up in a Christian family, I was seeking God. You were not. Even if your parents were, you weren't. God found you. And we said very clearly, some of you, some of us were living lives of blatant debauchery over here. And some of us were living lives pursuing this moral precision. But God saved both of us because of him. Christ came not when we were seeking him. That that has to be the foundations of all things. Understanding our salvation is the beginning of everything. And God saved us. And that shows his goodness. So we start with that understanding. And that is, that is why the church exists. To show the goodness of God. And it's best seen when we understand that we are people saved by grace. And, and we said it, and I don't want to preach again, but because we're saved by grace means that we are free here to love everyone, that everyone has a part to play, and that all of us together make up the body. And no one's more important than anyone else. Can I get an amen? Amen. Um, that felt good. We moved to prayer and fasting. Uh, last week we talked about the importance of prayer and fasting. And I said that no one in here um, thinks like we pray enough. Uh, no one in here is going like, okay, I, I'm good. I got my prayer in for the week. I'm good. We all feel like, okay, there's, there's room for improvement for every single one of us. That's, that's all of us. Regardless as to whether you're a three minute a week or whether you're three hour a day, we all know that there is room for improvement here. And I said what draws and drives prayer is knowing God. And not just a head knowledge of God. We, we talked about the distinction between head and heart of, of knowing about God and knowing God. It's easy in our culture to know about things. I mean, I can lift up my phone and know about a gajillion things. Right? And we, we know, like, there's a big game coming up next week. We know about the game. We know about the players. We know about the coaches. But no one's calling up Belichick this week saying, hey, so what about those footballs? What's going on? That's because you don't know him. Right, You know about him, but we want to make this distinction that we are not here gathering to know about God. That's not the point. Uh, and so if this turns into simply an intellectual endeavor, then I have failed, then you have failed. And eventually, once that intellect isn't percolated in the way that you hope it is every week, then you're going to run away and turn to something else. So our prayer is that, it'll, that it will be a knowing God, not just knowing about God, which drives to prayer, which drives us to do action like fasting, abstaining from what we have normal access to for the purpose of reminding ourselves that we are people who are dependent, not independent. Did, did anyone do that last week? I, I hope you, you don't need to raise your hand. Um, I was sick. I wasn't able to, but I will this next week doing what we can to remind ourselves that we are in need of the Lord. I hope you participated in that. Today, uh, it's a long enough intro, today we're looking at worship. Why do we worship? Why do we do the things we do? It's, uh, I, I kind of pointed to this a bit, but it's strange that, that we always sing, right? And 99 out of 100 times, you know what's coming. We're going to sing. You're going to get some guy talking at you for a while. We're going to hopefully turn into some more singing. There's going to be opportunity for community, opportunity for giving. Why do we do that? Where does worship originate from? What drives worship? Um, so if you've got a Bible, let's go Nehemiah. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you were here last week, you might remember. Uh, if you were not here, you won't. So I'm going to catch you up just a bit. Um, Nehemiah is written in 445. 
which dates are very important in the Bible. I, I love the fact that it's historical, um, that um, the fact that we have historicity behind the truth claims really gives it a lot of validity. So we know that Nehemiah is written in 445. We know that because you can line up when Artaxerxes, the Persian king, was there. And it tells us a lot about what was going on. In 445, we know that Israel already um, had split into two. We know that the north came in, uh, uh, the Assyrians, they took out the north. The Babylonians came in, they took out the south, so they're gone. Um, they're under, uh, the Jews were under Babylonian rule. By 445, Persia had already come in. They'd already conquered Babylon. So now Jews are under Persian rule. That's very important. By 445, what also took place before this was some of the Jews were able to go back to Jerusalem. Remember Cyrus the king issued the decree and said, okay, you can go back and you can start rebuilding. So they do. They start to rebuild. They rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, which is so crucial to this people group. The temple is key. Without the temple, you can't sacrifice. And so to understand that culture, you've got to understand, temple is very important. So they build the temple. They start rebuilding their homes. And then they start rebuilding what? And what happens? Um, last week we learned that they were starting to rebuild the, the walls. The walls around the city, which are very, very important. I, I can't stress enough. A city without walls is like a house without doors. Right? It's like a city without a police force. Right? What are you going to do when it's 4.55 and someone's in your room and you're sleeping and there's no cops to call? What do you do? I mean, I know what I would do, but that's a story for another time. So a city without walls is a city without protection. And that was crushing to them. Because as they're building the infrastructure once again, they've got this, uh, this temple, they've got the, the city, the things are in place, but they're missing a few things. They're missing protection, and it breaks Nehemiah. We're going to pick up on what, he, on what we read last week, and then we're going to just uh, keep going from there. Uh, we'll read this in verse 2. This is Nehemiah's uh, plea. He says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. So again, this is Nehemiah. He's in Persia. He's asking about the Jews who went back to Jerusalem to rebuild, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This breaks Nehemiah. We, we talked about this last week. He goes into a time of mourning. He goes into a, uh, into a time of weeping. The text says for days. Potentially this could have been even up to months. And then he approaches the king. We're going to rip through this whole section here in 2, 1 through 8. Um, and I'm not apologizing. I think it's good to read a lot of Bible. Uh, follow with me. This is the conversation between Nehemiah and the king of Persia. Once again, remember the whole free speech issue from last week? He is, I mean, this is, he's risking his life by going to the king. So he says this in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. All right, so put yourself there. He, he's, the, the king has full control of Nehemiah's life. 
He, he looks afraid. He looks sad in front of the king. And Nehemiah is terrified. <clears throat> Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. It's an important thing. You always want to say that when you go before the king. He says, why should not my face be sad? Now he's making his plea. When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Like, okay, what do, you, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I gave him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph and a keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is beautiful. The king says, you can go. He says, you're free to go. And not only does he give him permission, but he empowers him. He gives him a king's entourage. He gives him a military presence. He gives him horsemen. Um, because as he's leaving from Persia back to Jerusalem, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be people who are going to say, nope, we don't want you going back. And now he's got the entourage of the king. He's got an official decree. King's name is stamped on it. They can rebuild the, the walls. I recant on what I said earlier. Um, and not only can they do that, but they have my resources. They can go into our forest, they can cut down the trees, they can use that timber, and my name is behind it, and my authority is behind it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. You walk through kind of the rest of Nehemiah, um, we're going to get to eight, but kind of uh, three, four, five, and he rebuilds the walls. The city gets rebuilt, and it's not without opposition. And Nehemiah is, is faced with a couple of guys in there, um, Sambalah and a couple others, who just want this project to fail. Um, they are opposed to the Jewish nation. They want this thing to fail. But through protection of the king, through uh, Nehemiah's faithfulness and what God's called him to do, they get the walls rebuilt. Now, again, I, I, I want to set the stage. It's so important to see how important this moment was. You have the rebuilding of the temple. The temple's built. Most homes of people living in the city have now been rebuilt. And finally, they have protection. Finally, the walls are built. Now, it had been 140 years since this had happened. 140 years since Jerusalem was a city as it had existed. And now, finally, they're able to be a city once again. So you have kind of this grand crescendo of a moment building up to chapter 8, which is where we're going to spend our time here. You got about 50,000 people who gather here in chapter 8 to celebrate, to worship God, and to see what God's been doing through the culmination and rebuilding of this city. So we're going to pick it up in Nehemiah 8. Think large gathering. He kind of explains it here uh, as, we, as we go along. I'm, I'm going to mess up these names. There's a lot of them. I'm going to read them fast, so just bear with me. In Nehemiah 8, verse 1. This is the gathering. <clears throat> and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And they read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Maklajah, Hashem, Hashdabanam, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sharabai, Jamin, Akub, Shabithai, Hodiah, Mesitha, Kalita, Azariah, uh, Joshabad, Hanan, Palaya, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, we started today, and we said today is about worship. Now, I want to look at what drove these people to worship here. I'm going to go back to verse 1. We read this. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law before the assembly. Now, this is so important, and I am so passionate about this. Ezra preaches. The people demand that he preaches. You've got this assembly of 50,000 people. They build him a stage and they demand, they say, bring out the law, Ezra. You're our pastor. Preach to us. Worship is always a response to the proclamation of the word of God. Always. And so I want to say something. It's going to be long-winded, but it's so important in a time like this, in a season like this, in a church like ours, as we are are looking for our next leader. I'm speaking to us. I'm speaking to me. I'm speaking to our elders. I'm speaking to our senior pastor search committee. The primary gifting of our next leader has to be the ability to preach the word of God. Because it is the Word of God that saves lives. It is not His ability to organize, to lead groups, to to start a new building campaign, to, to have a new slogan. It is the Word of God that saves lives. And if we get away from that, if we put our stock into things that don't save, then we will come unraveled. God's Word has to be preached. Worship is always an overflow of the preached Word of God. And, like, don't... I have no ulterior motive in saying this. Don't, don't email me and say, oh, you know, Josh doesn't think these other things are important. I know they're important. They absolutely are important. But if program and organization does not lead to the proclamation of God's word, then it's for nothing. 
Right? And on top of that, through here and through other examples all over the New Testament, what are the pastors doing? They're preaching. Right? What happens in Acts 6 when, when there are people who aren't getting their needs met? Do the pastors say, okay, we're going to stop preaching so we can meet other needs? No, they don't do that. They rise up other people and they empower them and they say, okay, you meet these other needs so that I can keep preaching because it's the Word of God that saves lives because programs come, programs go, but the Word of God stays forever. Right? So I can go on for a long way about this, but honestly, you know, we, we talk about, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next slogan? What's the next vision statement going to be? Right? Programs will come and go. Right? Groups will come and go. This church will come and go. But what doesn't is the Word of God. And so we always will preach the Word of God here. Every single time we gather, the Word of God will be preached. And if it's not, I quit. And if it's not, you should quit. Because what happens? What happens when you get away from the Word of God is exactly what happened about a month ago. I was talking to some friends of ours, some longtime family friends, who came out of a meeting of a large Christian denomination who at one point was incredibly powerful, doing great stuff for the gospel, you know, planting churches all over, missions everywhere, hospitals everywhere. And in that meeting, one of the pastors stood up and said, is it important that God exists? I mean, that's what happens when you get away from the infallible, true Word of God. You start compromising. We will never compromise on the Word of God. And if so, what happens? You have an organized group of people who stand for nothing. And so we preach the Word of God. This is a non-negotiable. And so here's, here's kind of a gentle, kind of just reminder to, to you, and, you and me. As we are preparing for the next pastor, let your preparation and let your prayer not be, man, I want this guy to look like this and his family to be like this. He better be multi-relational. He better know my name. He better know everyone's name. He better have a great statement of this and that. Let your prayer be this. Let him preach the word of God that changes my life. Right? Think back through. A lot of you are old enough. Think back through the men of God who have preached the word into your life. Why do you love them? You don't love them because who they are. You love them because they gave you the word of life. If you love me for me, that's pathetic. My life is not that great. You should not pursue me. Right? Same with Rich. He's a nice guy. We preach the word of God because that is what gives life. And so let your expectation be, I want the Word. I don't want a man. I want the Word. I want a man who can give me the Word. I, I can go on a long time about that, but Ezra gives them the Word. That is why they respond. They've got the Gospel. It's an Old Testament Gospel, but it's the Gospel. They're looking forward to Christ. That's what, when they say He's reading the law, He's reading the law saying, hey, look, you're broken people. You need to sacrifice. Look forward in your sacrifices to Messiah coming. And what happens? Man, I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes. But what happens? They start weeping. They start mourning. They're totally crushed. They're broken. The law breaks me. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, they gather people and say, don't be broken. This is good news. And they actually send them out to festival. Amen, amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord, their faces to the ground. And they leave, like I said, they're convicted, they're sobbing. 
This is for hours. See, he's preaching for hours. Everyone's standing, sobbing, they're broken, and he leaves them and he says, as they're going, he says this, he says, go on your way. And he gives an encouragement. This is in verse 10. He says, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people down saying, be quiet, it's okay for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, you got a people who are totally broken. And then Nehemiah and Ezra say, you don't need to be broken right now because, because the law shows you part of the story. And it's convicting, isn't it? I mean, every time I open up the Word of God, my life falls short. I mean, it falls very short. But isn't that the point? I mean, isn't that the point of the law? Like, God didn't give them all these laws so that they could reach that point. He gave them law because He knows that they're never going to reach it. And so He sends them on their way. And He actually sends them to a festival. And I think it's so beautiful how this is exactly what we are doing as a people right now. Tonight, we're coming back. We're gathering. We're eating a meal here. And we're going to worship. And why? Why does He send them back? The Word of God. The Word of God that not only does it cut to the heart and show you where you fall, but it lifts us up and shows us who God is and shows us what Christ has done. And so he says, look at what God's done. He's restored our people once again. He's still working through us. He's still bringing Messiah through our people. And he sends them. And he sends them to this interesting festival. It's, it's kind of a fun time. It's called the Festival of Booths. Um, it's, it's very much like fasting in, in a way that um, they're abstaining from what they have normal access to, their houses in this case, and they're building these strange tents on top of their houses. So they had flat roofs back then. A lot of countries still do this. You do your laundry, hang your laundry up there and so and such. But they build these tents on top of their roofs. And all their neighbors are looking at, well, what, what do you, why do you have these you know, weird things on your roof? But they're staying in roofs to remind themselves of how faithful God is. Now, if you remember your history, remember what God um, commanded them to do as they left Israel, as they were, or as they left Egypt, sorry, and were waiting to get into the Promised Land. They didn't have permanent homes; they were wandering, and so God um, provided uh, materials so that they could live in booths. And so, annually, according to law, they were to have this festival where they go on top of their roof and they remember. God, you were faithful to your people back then. Let's remember how faithful you are to us right now. And then they celebrate with a meal. Uh, then they celebrate in worship, in singing, in a response. In verse 12, it says, All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make a great rejoicing. And why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. You know, I, I understand that God's word is convicting and it does show us our shortcomings. And, and there are times that we should be drawn to tears and repentance and confession. But we, we don't stay there. You only stay there if you can't forgive yourself, if you can't forgive others, and if you're not forgiven. But the gospel shows us that all three of those things are true in Christ, that we are a forgiven people. And so because we are a forgiven people, our life then should respond in worship, which is what drives the people, what drives them in this congregation to lift up their voices. 
We're going we're gonna to jump ahead here about 450 years. Um, I think it's beautiful to camp out in Old Testament. I like that. I like seeing how God works through the people. But I also like seeing how God works through the church. And he's working through the church now in the way that he was back then. And he gives a beautiful word in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13. So jump ahead there. We're going to finish with this idea from Hebrews 13 to the church. I'm going to give you a second just to get there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'm going to read it. Hebrews 13, verse 14 says this. And this is kind of the idea that we're going to end on. But, but here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, the author of Hebrews uses the word, words for here to qualify what he says in the entire chapter. And he has a long list of things that he says, um, really a pretty powerful list. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect strangers. Remember the maligned and the incarcerated in your community. Hold your marriage in honor. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Follow your leaders and imitate their faith. Don't be led away by strange teaching. Be strengthened by grace, not by food. And he says all of it. And here, here's, here's how this works. Because we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. I, I just thought this was so beautiful. Because I, I have had these words for a while. And, and to go through a week like this that, that my family's had. And, and to have this verse be the verse I'm, I've been wanting to end on. How perfect that this is not our city. See, when this is your city, when this is all you have, there's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of rejoicing. When this is all you have, you have what happened in my extended family where, where there's a funeral and everyone is in it for them. Okay, what can I grab now? I mean, it's sickening. You know, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. I mean, you're talking brother against brother. When this is the only city you have, you better make a nice house now. But when your city is a city that is to come, aren't you free to worship regardless of circumstance? And in this city, don't circumstances change constantly? I mean, just think about where we've come through as an economy over the last five, ten years. I mean, yeah, I, it's wild. Like when, when we were in Korea, I used to watch morning news. And we got there September of 2008 and just watching this economy just crumble. You go from like third quarter 2007 to first quarter 2009, we lost $16 trillion. It's like 24% of the average household net worth. And for what? See, conditions come and conditions go here. And then I remember reading and seeing story after story of executive taking his life because instead of making $100 million, he's only making 10 this year. True fact. I mean, this is, this is us. This is our city. This is our nation. But this isn't our city. And this isn't our nation. And when it's not, we're free to worship. Because what does the next thing say? It says, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And, and let me say this. It is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to be here. 
There's many places to go. It's going to be a sacrifice to come back tonight. But I would beg you, as we as a body are going to come, we're going to have the meal. The meal is just a precursor to our time of worship, which is why we're having the event. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice to give. It's a sacrifice to belong. It's a sacrifice to be known. But is it worth it? Yeah, because this is in our city. If this is your city, then none of it's worth it. It's not a sacrifice. Don't do it. This is good. It's going to get. Make, make the best run you can. But he says this is in our city. And so we make a sacrifice of praise. And the last thing I, I want to end with, we talked about singing as a response to the preached word. I mean, you, you have to sing if you know what God has done in your life. And we sing when we worship in culture all the time. Right? You go up to Seattle. I mean, that's a loud, loud atmosphere. I'm not talking about the city. I'm talking about the football stadium, right? We're worshiping. Right? And I, I have nothing to do with Seattle. Um, we, we sing when we worship. It's, that's how God created us. Our lack of singing, our lack of worship simply just shows that we don't understand what God has done for us. That doesn't mean you need to jump all around. I'm not saying that. We can worship in different ways. Some of us worship at this volume. Some of us, that's okay. God's made us all different. That's a beautiful thing. But we worship, and we do it through sacrifice. And then every single week we get to the table. I think that's beautiful here. Because every week we're reminded with the gospel. And what do I mean by that? I mean the gospel that says, here's the bread, here's the cup, here's the body and the blood. This is Christ. If it doesn't get to Jesus, then it really is for nothing. And we've got to get to Jesus every week. So it's my intention as one of your leaders to provide a space where every single week you're You're facing the reality that God gave his life for you. Jesus didn't come to be a moral teacher. Did he teach some good things? Absolutely. Did he teach us the way of life? Absolutely. He came to rescue sinners. He gave his life for us. So every single week as you go to that table, remember. Remember, God, you gave your life for me. And I'm going to, in a sacrifice, offer praise to you. And that's why we gather as a people. Would you pray with me? And would you join us tonight as we do this again? Heavenly Father, it is, it is in weeks like this that I find so much comfort and so much security in being able to call you Father. I said it already, but I'm, I'm so reminded of how temporary this life is, uh, how out of my hands things are, how dependent we are. And God, that's a good thing, because if it were up to me, Lord, things would crumble quickly. But it's not. It's in your hands, and you're a good Father. Father, we we thank you that we have your word, and let it be something that we cling to. Lord, I know that every one of us in here goes through seasons, seasons where um, we are enjoying your word, where we are regularly sacrificing and being in your word, and we go through seasons where we don't. I pray that we would work hard. Yeah, I said the word work, that we'd work hard at being in your word. Because your word breathes life. Lord, I thank you that I have the privilege of belonging to a church who cherishes your true, infallible word. And Lord, let us be a church who doesn't compromise your word. Let us be a church who holds your word tight. Let us be a church who who enters into the programs and, and the movements of loving people and loving our city. But eventually, let us open our mouths and, and use the words and share the gospel. 
Jesus, thank you for the table. Thank you for your life, which the table represents. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.